without tears If looks could kill they probably will In games without frontiers War without tears Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, thank you for staying with me as, as I journey through the works of, of, of Philip K. Dick. Uh, we are into 1954 now, which is the second great year of Philip Dick's uh, short story writing. He wrote, he, during over two years, he wrote something like 50 short stories, published about 50 short stories. I think he wrote some of them before. And this is really, as I've been saying for a while, this is the reservoir from which many of his ideas and some of his greatest ideas come forth. And it's not surprising that the, the new television series, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, is drawing heavily from the stories from, from particularly 1954 and, and, and a few big ones from 1955. In this episode, we'll be looking at The Crystal Crypt. The Crystal Crypt. It's a, it's a story of espionage, of, of war, um, and it, it's very much a Cold War story. Uh, so that's, of course, not surprising. Many of Dick's stories from this time really are Cold War stories, but th this one is, is pretty focused on the themes of, of war. It was first published in Planet Stories in January of 1954, although you're most likely to find it in the first volume of The Collected Stories of Philip Dick, The Paycheck, or and other classic stories by Philip K. Dick. That's, the most, that's where it's most commonly published now, but as I've been saying also that, that you have different titles for these Different five different volumes. Sometimes they move a few stories around, but it was really for promotional reasons. They tried to tie these books to movies or, or, or yeah, to, to movies that came out, and so you'll you'll get slightly different titles. I think this first volume was it may have been second variety in the very first publica publication, or maybe it was the Short Happy Life of the Brown Oxford, which is actually the next story I'll be looking at in the next episode. Um, but anyways. Uh, what goes on in this story? Um, the Crystal Crypt. Um, so we got some Terran citizens are preparing to leave Mars. And it's the last ship, ship leaving before war will likely break out. So you have this very busy setting where like the last Earth citizens are trying to flee Mars. Because um, war is going to start. So we get, the context is a very tense relationship between Earth and, and the colonies. Now these colonies are are humans, but they're humans who have, have left Earth and have kind of developed their own cultures and their own political systems and their own kind of identity. And, you know, this is a common thing that Dick has done in some of his stories where you have a settled um, solar system, but with a lot of different systems. In Solar Lottery, you kind of got one big system over all of the planets. But, um, you know, so he, he has he has played with both ideas. But in this one, each planet sort of developed his own, own culture. And war is about to break out, so everyone's fleeing. So not long after taking off, the ship is ordered to land back on Mars, and this was the very final group of Terrans to leave the planet. They return to the surface, and a Martin official called Leiter begins to question the crew about a massive terrorist attack that just took place. So um, just as they left, this attack took place, and so they called back the ships, and this was the one they were able to get a hold of. There's three Terrans, two men and one woman, um, are, well, it's claimed that three Terrans, two men and one woman, destroyed a Martian city two hours earlier, and the presumption is they're trying to escape on this ship. The leader determines that the crew must be on the ship. They, you know, not wanting to die, we're hoping to escape before war breaks out. Each passenger is questioned about the destruction of the Martian city, but all deny it, and they're subjected to a lie detector test, and this confirms that none of them have lied. 
They all told the truth about their innocence in the destruction of this Martian city. And on the way home, the passengers on the ship then begin to discuss their individual histories and the strange events that took place prior to their launch. In the course of these conversations, it is determined that Mara, Jan, and Eric, three of the passengers, must have been the ones the leader was looking for. And they asked for details of what happened. How was this Martian city destroyed? So then we get a flashback. Eric, Mara, and Jan Lee avoid leaders. These are kind of like the secret police on Mars. Uh, avoid them on their way to the city. This is the greatest of all Martian cities. And in fact, this is a little bit later in the story, I think, but we, we do get a description of, of the Martian city. Quote, the city was huge, much larger than they had managed from the drawings and models they had studied so carefully back in New York in the war ministry office. Huge it was, huge and stark. Black towers rising up against the sky, incredibly thin columns of ancient metal, columns that have stood wind, stood wind and sun for centuries. Around the city was wall stone, red stone, immense bricks that had been lugged there and fitted into place by slaves of the early Martian dynasties under the whiplash of the first great kings of Mars. An ancient sun-baked city, a city set in the middle of a wasted plain, beyond groves of dead trees, a city seldom seen by Terrans, but a city studied on maps and charts for every, in every war office on Terra. A city that contained, for all its ancient stone and archaic towers, the ruling group of Mars, the Council of Senior Leaders, black-clad men who governed and ruled with an iron hand. End quote. So we learn a lot about the this civilization, that it's it's essentially a, a monarchy with this ruling class of, of senior leaders. So there's different ranks of this kind of leader class um, from, you know, it's kind of like, I guess it's an all encompassing term for the whole bureaucracy of, of the Martian government. It very much seems like uh, almost a a Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian or Sumerian city in the, in the imagery of slave labor, the relatively I guess, dry environment, right? One reason we have so much record from Mesopotamia is it was made on clay and cuneiform also because it's relatively dry there. So much of that was under um, deserts away from the, the, the two rivers. And so those cities are kind of made out of clay, made out of dirt, made, you know, and made by forced labor. You kind of get that imagery here. I don't know if that's what Dick was going for. Obviously, Mars is, is a, would have been a very dry place. So, but yeah, this is the greatest of the Martian cities. And it's been there for a long time. So this is many centuries after humans had settled on Mars and they really kind of developed their own cultural um, frameworks. So while they're, they see the city, they encounter some local farmers, but their most secret, the most serious risk was a close encounter with some soldiers. And despite these dangers, all three of the saboteurs placed a device in three specific locations around the city. They activate the device, and then it shrinks the city down to the size of a small globe, almost like a snow globe. And Dick has some kind of fascination with snow globes. It, it has actually come up quite often in his, in his stories. You have a snow globe, certainly, in his very first story. It was unpublished until, later, until after he died. But stability, uh, a city in a snow globe is essentially the main device in that story. And we've also seen snow globes in the the these world-making cubes in The Trouble with Bubbles, where it's a, 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 a hobby for people to kind of make entire civilizations and universes in these snow globes. So the idea of a culture reduced down to a plaything 
um, or smuggled into places or reduced down to small size is something he, he's been interested in. I don't know if this has ever been analyzed about what it is about this kind of the snow globe city that fascinated Philip Dick so much, but it's, it's, it comes up quite a lot. So, um, so there, the, with the activation of the device, they're able to get the city down to the small size. Then they depart and they're, you know, they're questioned by a leader who places them um, under arrest. During the questioning, the three escape the police car and flee towards Marsport from where they're able to escape onto the ship. And that, that's our flashback. And the reason they're not identified by the lie detector test given by the leader while they were being interrogated was that the city was never destroyed. The question was, how did you destroy the city? You know, did you destroy the city or something like that? And so by saying essentially that they didn't do that, they told the truth. Um, but they, you know, they denied having any knowledge about the city's destruction. And that was perfectly true. So they passed the lie detector test. So in a way, there's there's two functions here to the snow globe device. One is it it allows the saboteurs to escape, but it also allows them to not destroy the city, but actually take it away and maybe do something with it. It's not clear what they would do if they're going to resize it or just kidnap the ruling council or whatever. Now, as the passengers reveal their story, um, one of the other passengers, um, he's the one who actually was trying to get them to talk, reveals that he is actually a Martian spy. He realizes that the city was not destroyed due to the lack of debris and to the law and to the loss of mass in the region. So he says, I, I knew it was never destroyed in the first place. I knew something else was going on, but I didn't know what it was. And the, you know, basically his, you know, because mass was gone in that part of Mars and that was detectable. And also there was no kind of debris, garbage, the things you'd expect from a destroyed city. Um, and so Thatcher just sort of says, well, we'll just steal this technology. We'll take it from you. We, we have it all here now, and we'll use it against the Terra in the upcoming conflict. You know, that basically Earth has declared war by destroying this Martian city. So that's the story. Uh, it's essentially, it's a story of about nuclear proliferation, if I want to come down to it. But let, let's, let's go into this analysis a little bit. The story has a nice spy versus spy device. Uh, it was certainly influenced by these cultural motifs on Cold War espionage that were quite common at the time. Certainly something that was popular, you know, in popular culture. There's a lot of this kind of spy literature that was quite um, famous and emerging. One important element of this is that the saboteurs seem not to be fully malevolent, right? They're the goal is to use the Martian city trapped in the crystal crypt to either win the war or avoid war. So maybe they're not really out to, to destroy the people, right? They want to save the city. And in fact, they're quite impressed by the city. We see they're um, impressed by it. And they talk about urban life a few times. One of the actual saboteurs talks about how she's from New York and how she loves New York. So there's, there's, a, there's a pro kind of urban ethos among these saboteurs. So maybe it really is about just, you know, a way to stop war, almost like, uh, you know, a hostage kind of situation, trying to uh, say, well, if you give us peace, we'll give you back your ruling council and give you back your great city. Rather than destroying the city, they choose to preserve it. In an era when the predominant vision of war you know, certainly in the Cold War era, the, the vision we had of war was the destruction of entire cities and destruction of the entire world with these massive nuclear bombs, right? If you can go back and watch the 
um, what's the show? One World or None. It's a you can watch it on YouTube. It's a propaganda. Uh, not I guess I want to say propaganda, but it, it's a film put together by scientists who are against the use and development of nuclear weapons after after the war. It was it was the scientist movement, and they were active. They were the first kind of anti-nuke activists out there. The, some of them were actually involved in developing the bomb in the first place, but they wanted to see it eradicated. And they focus on this like destruction that's going to rain down on us if we allow these weapons to to survive and just how much more massive they are than anything we've seen before. So we got kind of a very different way of winning a war here um, and a different way of destroying cities. Unfortunately, like all technologies, the power to reduce cities to a small size can be used by either side in a conflict. Uh, proliferation is always a, a byproduct of war. Um, no nation in a war, no society in a war is not going to try to arm itself to fight its its enemies. Now, sometimes asymmetrical warfare is possible and even you know effective, but usually you try to match them um, weapon for weapon. And we see this again and again in war as, you know, with technological developments. And certainly in the Cold War, you had that just a few years after the Hiroshima bomb was dropped. The Russians build their, their bomb and this opens up the door to nuclear proliferation. And it's still one of the major foreign policy questions we have uh, in our century is how far should we let these weapons spread? And is it possible to stop the development of these weapons? You know, and it seems less and less possible to really contain this this power. Uh, and not only can it be used by either side in the conflict, it could be used for good or ill, right? The the use of reducing the city is kind of left open. It could be a hostage. It could be to preserve things. Certainly this technology could be used to preserve things, uh, to preserve knowledge, to preserve information, to protect landmarks in times of war, right? If we, you know, in World War One, many cathedrals were damaged, um, and especially the stained glass windows in France were damaged um, by by the fighting. And before World War II broke out, they actually were able to take those stained glass windows and things and preserve them and put them underground where they were safe uh, during World War II. In the same way, a technology like this could be used to preserve um, culture um, and Knowledge. Just think of if you could take a whole library and reduce it down into a sphere like that. So this has a lot of very useful applications. But in a Cold War environment, we just kind of gravitate towards its use in in war, and that's that's true of nuclear weapons and nuclear well not what nuclear weapons, but nuclear power uh, has its positive applications. We learned through Thatcher, who's the Martian agent that figures out what went on, you know that Earth cities are going to be reduced. And this is going to spark an inevitable and endless cycle of retaliation that will be every bit as devastating at the at the end of the story uh, as a more conventional war. So yeah, this is this is a pretty tight story about uh, nuclear proliferation, and um, it doesn't go that far beyond it. But it should, you know, I I do think these have many positive ap applications that could have been used. I, I, you see this again in like The Variable Man. If you go back and look at my episode on The Variable Man or read that story, do read it if you haven't got to it yet. But in The Variable Man, you have a technology that's developed to to like have a new type of faster than light travel to allow humans to explore the farthest reaches of space. And it doesn't work. It, it keeps failing. Uh, so the military planners decide to use it to just blow up stars and, and, and win a war, right, and destroy an entire civilization. 
And so that kind of it, there, there you have like a, something that was designed for peaceful means to get, you know, can easily get used for for war means. Uh, weapons of war. And then this theme is going to be most deeply explored in the Zap Gun, which is a whole novel about uh, plowsharing weapons of destruction into consumer goods. Uh, so we, in the story, we have yet another example of a conflict between humans and human colonials uh, in other planets and in other bodies of the solar system. In many of his early stories, this uh, Dick liked to imagine this geopolitical scenario where you have uh, humans spread out into the solar system and then kind of develop their own cultures and often come into conflict with their homeland. And the model for this obviously is like the American Revolution, right? The English and many other people, of course, but, you know, it's there were British colonies are settled in the Americas and then eventually they rebel against their their motherland. He has other, of course, geopolitical situations. None of these are in a, kind of in the same universe. He just kind of borrows different ideas, except with one. Well, a few stories kind of exist in the same universe, obviously, but um, there's not many, actually. It's it's more of these kind of themes and motifs you get reused from time to time. But another he has is like Proxima Centauri being like a belligerent enemy, right? So you either have like former Earthlings, you know, the descendants of these settlers, fighting Earth, or you have some distant power doing that, involved in some war. So the difference between the people who stay on Earth and those who ventures out into the cosmic frontier actually fascinates Dick a lot. He's got a whole story about this. Um, it's Which one is it? I talk about it in the history um, episode I've done a few weeks ago. Yeah, it has kind of a, a banal title. That's why I couldn't remember what it is. It's, it's Souvenir. And this story is about a whole culture that kind of ventured off, became a frontier culture, and then and then kind of started doing its own thing over time and ended up being very different from Earth. And the question is what to do with that. And I'll, well, I'll talk about that when I get to that, that story. Uh, but you can go to see my history um, episode, which talks about it. So in this case, Mars is presented as a technological and military backwater. It, it's a potential threat to Terra, but it's not initially seen as a threat. It has to borrow this very destructive technology to really match up to them. It has to essentially steal this technology from the saboteurs. You also have a strong police state, a strong police presence everywhere. The state is omnipresent throughout Mars. It's a very hierarchical, statist, bureaucratic culture. It's essentially a police state. The cause for the conflict is that Mars seems to be controlling the trade and constricting Terra's economy. So we have kind of an emerging power which has a lot of economic clout, but is somehow powerful enough to really strap the economy on Earth, which is uh, leads to conflict. Is Dick here imagining a situation where Earth will need to expand to survive? Um, I do think at this time in his career, Dick does believe the frontier is an essential cornerstone to to human development and and humans have to go to the stars uh this is going to be themes in some of his first novels it's going to come up again and again all the way all his novels from the 1950s sort of play with this idea maybe not all but quite a few uh the man who jape does it solar lottery does it uh the world jones made does it you have it and certainly in time out of joint which i think was published in 1960 um, dr futurity you have a bit of it 
So this, this theme comes up a lot. I really do think it's a defining feature of Dick's literature, uh, Dick's writing in the 1950s. And you see it here, at least hinted at, right, that Earth has to, can't be confined by Mars, and that's an existential threat to its, its future. It's a conclusion we certainly draw from the variable man, in which humanity has to venture out or they're going to die. Right. Here it's presented with a more crass economic formulation that just Mars is somehow restraining Earth's economic development. Now the difference here is not so great. Commerce, travel, and tourism um, between the two planets is discouraged. So it's really kind of holding back the development of Earth. Um, so that's the story, the Crystal Crypt, and that's my feelings about it. But maybe you've read it and you have some other things you want to say about it. Um, I... I rather like this story. Um, it's 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 like many of Dick's stories. You have the twist. You have the clue, the cool little plot device that makes the story work. And and some of these do have kind of a outer limitsy Twilight Zone feel. I think more like Outer Limits actually than the Twilight Zone because Twilight Zone was so moralistic all the time. Uh, outer Limits was a little bit, uh, I think, closer in theme to what you have in 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 Philip Dick's stories, but, it, you know, in the idea that they kind of rest on a twist or a twist ending. But around that, you have all these kind of wonderful themes. And that, that's one reason I'm, I'm doing this podcast, obviously, is to really extract some of these powerful themes and connect them to to other works. Um, so that's it. So if you have opinions about Crystal Crypt, anything I missed, please write in and, and share them with me. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from listeners. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time when we look up another look at another story of. Blue